Chapter 7 Do you even realize that you have done something directly contrary to my reason for bringing you along? Lon's voice was a barely contained growl, even more so than usual. He had outlived his purpose. His purpose? Lon shouted, her voice echoing up against the algae-covered walls around her and Derry. Next time, could you please put your philosophical slaughter lower on the list of priorities than our convenience? I don't remember you being so squeamish, Derry muttered, pouting. I am not squeamish, Derry. I am practical. Derry rolled her eyes. Fine, fine, she said, dismissively waving towards Lon. And now we have to sleep in a bloody ruin. Lon sunk down on the floor with a loud sigh, a large cloud of century-old sand rising around her. I'm sorry, all right? Derry whined. Sort yourself out, or I am dropping you off at the next oasis. Aw, Derry said, looking into the small fire they had managed to scrunch together. She picked one of the embers up, rolling it in the palm of her hand. Lon stared at the ember, where it sizzled against the hand without leaving a mark. Derry had taken off her cloak, and it left her hands, throat, and ankles visible. Her ashy, light-brown skin was scattered with founts, hexbrands, regular tattoos, and scars. It was difficult to tell what filled the purpose, other than aesthetical ones, and what were marks from her extensive resetting of her own bones, muscles, and cartilage. Her face had always been free of all that, however, apart from the hexbrand on her forehead, and the old, indecipherable fount partially hidden underneath it. Derry's bright green eyes glittered in the light from the fire, Judging by her aimless staring and stiff little smile, it seemed she was eons away, thinking about something that amused her. With that unhinged face stuck, it was impossible to remember Derry's uncanny ability to make people trust her. Lon supposed it was all magic in the end, and she didn't care for it. One of the things she had been most frustrated to discover leaving Bloodmore was that the inability, or at least incredible difficulty, to notice deception magic being performed seemed to be universal. Instead, she had rather noticed that people outside the strict magical rules of Bloodmore seemed even less concerned about the presence of deception magic. Indeed, the rest of Runa appeared entirely content that the general idea of just don't was somehow enough to stem its influence. That said, Lon also knew that Derry was fonder of more direct, less covert magic. More often than not, a set of founts lit up when she needed to convince someone or get information out of them. Lon had learned that utilizing fonts to influence someone meant mind magic was performed, not deception magic. Sometimes she wondered what the actual difference was, but that thought frustrated her and complicated things, so she tried not to. Easier that way. As if responding to an invisible signal, Derry flinched, looking up into Lon's grey eyes. Are you staring, Buppy? Derry smiled, her eyes narrowing. I am. <laughs> you needn't bother. Don't flatter yourself. Lon grunted, lips pulling back in a grin or a warning. Derry leaned back, resting on her arms behind her, tapping her crossed feet to some internal rhythm. She watched Lon deliberately, slowly. 
I'm trying to remember how you looked before. But this new you just suits you so well. I think it has erased that other past Lon. <laughs> Lon poked the fire with a dry stick. It caught fire immediately. She left it in there. A little grey for my tastes, however. And your hair is still... <clears throat> a nightmare. Didn't ask for your evaluation, Lon muttered. No. I am a very generous individual, you know this. Lon shook her head at Derry, some of her light brown hair dislodging from whatever mess it was stuck in at the back of her neck. It fell down around her face in grimy strands. She tried to not look up at the walls around them too much. They reminded her of that complicated magic she constantly tried to avoid thinking about. It was difficult to stop looking, however, seeing as there were constant trickles of light pouring over the stone of the walls with uneven frequency. She was a hunter. She was trained to notice flickers in her periphery. The stone looked as if it had once been entirely covered by plaster. Where it was still intact, one could make out different motifs. Ori fighting enormous creatures in dense forests and lakes. What looked like audiences and performers on large stages, playing instruments and singing. Creatures that looked like mistmares, but the parts of the body that weren't Ori resembling seemed to be a plethora of familiar and unfamiliar animals. The dunes of the Kajiza, which these ruins and many more like it were in the middle of, were nowhere to be seen. The magic of the past lingered, or that's what it seemed like to Lon at least. That must be what the flickers of light that ran through the lines of the art was, like lightning across the sky. Lon did not like it. Well, all in all, Derry said, snapping out of another bout of internal musings. Despite your very enthusiastic complaining, I am going to deem this a success. We know where we're going and everything, Derry exclaimed happily, starting to roll out a pristine-looking bedroll on the blue-white sand-covered floor of the ruin. No, we know a general direction, Lon protested. Oh, stop being such a drenched kitten. We know a direction? Which is the direction where very few settlements are? Also, a direction I have several contacts in. I'm sure one of them will have seen something. Or, our quarry will at some point leave something behind that I can trace. You underestimate me as usual, puppy. And don't worry, I'll very quietly and without killing anyone Make sure someone will take us across this marvellous death trap of a sand ocean, both swiftly and safely. She dreamed again, like every time she slept. She was cursed, she knew that. Cursed with these visitations to the dream mist. The guards in the little oasis village. The guards were chasing them, because they had killed someone. She should let them catch her, because she had killed someone, and she had enjoyed it. That wasn't right. Here she was, dreaming again, watching herself kill someone over and over, crying over their body, carrying it over to the boundless pit full of lives she had taken gently putting it down among the others, a never-ending regret.
You have missed me, Bennett. Crow skin turned ice, sweat forming on it like sharp frozen droplets. They could move anything but their eyes. They could barely breathe. Slowly, a shifting, uneasy shadow spread along the wall in the bright light from the moons outside. The form creating the shadow came closer, and every owl made crow's lungs tighter in their chest. Even more alarmingly, it also made their hex brands sting as if someone were burning them. What have you done to Lydikai? Crow managed to hiss out, through anger alone. Your Aemoir. Yes. It cannot hear anything. Cannot see anything. The voice was many voices, or one sharp hiss. It was impossible to tell. It bounced around the room as if acoustics were a joke to it. If you've hurt him, you must care for it deeply for you to worry. So quickly. A tinge of disapproval. Jealousy? That's one way of putting it. Crow let out, alongside what felt like the last breath for a long time. They instinctively screwed their eyes shut as the form made its way into their peripheral vision. The darkness behind their eyelids wasn't comforting. It succumbed to the shift in gravity, the blatant disregard for logic that seeped into the air around them. But it must be better than looking straight at it. Thank you for allowing me such a deep connection with you, Venet. Something even colder than crow's skin met their bare arm, so frigid it burned. Several limbs, or fingers, or tongues wormed against them. The pain from the hexbran on their chest cut through the cold with a heat as counteract. Scars not holding, blood coming through down the sides of their ribcage. Something was simultaneously seeping into and out of them, some continuous connection latching on to the creature that was now weighing down a confusing pattern on the bed around Crow. I wanted to see how easily you allowed me to slip through again. If I could... Without being asked, the voice was like a thousand voiced breaths against both crow's ears, painstaking to make out and impossibly loud in an exhausting oscillating inside their head. The pain in the lines of the hexes felt as if the ender's nails were in them again, reshaping, intensifying. Every word was another binding, another command, another inevitable beckoning. And yet, Crow resisted, though they had forgotten why now. Look at me, Crow. A last pull at the hopeless, an inescapable surrender. They obeyed. The tears that instantly filled Crow's eyes were their blessing 
blurring the vision of the cluster of black eyes that dotted the ender's eye sockets, moving in calculating unison across Crow's face. Its skin was so pale it was translucent, like wet rice paper over dark veins. It had limbs coming out from torso and hips in a dazzling, darting array that was impossible to count, bracing against the wall and bed. Slowly, the ender's razor split of a mouth neared Crow, but the words held like manacles. They couldn't close their eyes, even as they stung from the dryness of the salt-smelling breath bleeding from the corners of the ender's mouth. Crow didn't know if it was nails, teeth, or tongues, but something rasped over the raw hex on their chest. The pain turned into something else. It was so impossible to grasp that it morphed into a sound, a constant clicking at the edge of their consciousness, counting towards what must be it ending at some point. Time was nothing here. When it finally stopped, another moon face might just as well have passed. Thank you for making me concrete, Venet. Crow heard the ender caress across the tiny hairs on their arms. Lidikai woke to a scream. He remembered falling asleep. It had taken a while, but he had. Nothing he remembered about falling asleep prompted the sensation he felt now, however, like coming up for air from a staggering abyss. Was he the one who had been screaming? Maybe. But if so, he had stopped and Crow had picked it up. Their voice was a shattered panic, unconscious of its effect on the rest of the room. Lidikai had nothing to stop it, nothing to help him or Crow, Something about the sound the other Ori was making froze the mage in his step. It terrified him. He was just staring, trying to make his hands go to his ears to quiet the sound, but not succeeding. Eventually, the sound from Crow turned into breathing, into whimpers, into a disoriented staring around the room. Lidikai could see blood on the hex brand on Crow's chest, but the scars were still healed, making it look as if someone had dripped blood onto them. Stiffly, Lidikai found the motor skills to make himself move over to the other side of the room. Crow was staring down into the mattress, a combination of anger and fear on their face, one trying to chase the other away in turns. It came here again, they whispered. I... I didn't see anything, Lidikai said. It was true, but Crow's indignant stare meeting him told him that was not a reason to voice it. It was here. And you should be really fucking happy you're still alive, Crow seethed. They threw their legs over the side of the bed. And no, they continued as they caught Lidikai's inclination. I don't want to answer questions about it. Lidikai's hand fell to his side. He nodded, a short nod, that no one cared about. 
The moonlight was dimming outside the window, slowly chased away by Sena. Might as well get an early start. Sharai! The ring in Dianopora's septum shivered below her strained breathing. Her hand had slammed into the porous mora wood of her desk at her exclamation, and the golden rings on her fingers had made little dents underneath them. The ribs of Calopis did not make a single sound. The shout from their Diane had not moved them. They were waiting for further instructions, for her leave, for their orders. The Diane stood up again, closed her eyes, calmed her breathing. She realized something. I thank you, Lightbringers, for showing me the way. She whispered under her breath, sending her thoughts up towards the skies, guiding her. This is your chance to put your new gains to the test, she said louder, turning around, order reforming in her. Split in two. Five follow the soul moon. Five hunt down this agent of chaos. The memory... Vrai's body folding together unnaturally, pulled between the prison bars, flashed before her, and she threw something hard from the desk into the nearest wall. The glass walls were thick, but the object, a brass inkwell it turned out, made an impact. The black, viscous liquid spattered over the entire orange-hued glass of the wall and slowly pooled on the floor where the inkwell landed. She watched it for several laboured breaths. I can't imagine she will be hard to track. She is destruction incarnate. She turned to her shimmering squadron, all their eyes following her with efficiency. Go. With one loud, synchronised sound of crystal against crystal, they went. Glad I slept without the shirt on, at least. Lydia could hear the attempt at the joke in Crow's voice. The two of them were on another carriage, having stumbled, sleep-deprived, through the pointed-out pole at dawn. The entire village of Renetti had seemed still asleep, which Lydia was grateful for. He and Crow had looked everything but inconspicuous as they staggered along. Crow hanging on Lydikai's arm due to a pain in their hexbrands that refused to abate. Crow had taken a nap, or at least let down for a while, as soon as they got on. Now they were sitting up, hunched over their legs, frowning down into the carriage floor. The morning was cold and crisp, sky still clear, but misty with morning dew. The landscape was the same green, dense forest they had travelled through since entering White Midril. But the weather gave it a less brilliant shade now. Lydikai and Crow were sitting as far away from the driver's seat as possible. Lydikai hadn't really registered anything about the driver at all. He had just been happy they had been let on. With a faint sigh, Crow sat up a little straighter. What's the first stop? they said shooting a glance at Lydikai, and then at the back of the driver. Lydikai was quite sure it was a need for distraction rather than something Crow was genuinely interested in knowing, but he nodded and stood up, moving to ask. He tapped their shoulder, 
and raised his eyebrows a little in surprise as she slowly turned with an inviting calm face. She had black eyes and dark brown skin, a little darker than his own, and, what had struck him, a tandia along some other founts on her face. The tandia was generally a mark of institutional magic, the fount you were given at your admission into one of the institutes. It showed and supported the root of magic you had chosen to focus on in your studies. In practice, Vidika was sure non-institutional practitioners also chose to create founts on their forehead. It was a potent place to have one. However, he wouldn't be surprised if non-institutional majors chose not to place one there for the exact reason of how tightly connected it was to institutes. They kept outside apices for a reason. The driver's tandia was done in yellow and was the symbol of the magic modality of bodies or mass magic in the vernacular. The magic used for moving objects, shifting mass, manipulating inanimate bodies. The modality that had once been Lydicite's safe place in magic. Hair, grey with age, disappeared into her hood in rough, thin locks and sprawled out further down against her chest. Some of them were adorned with little metal beads. Where do we stop first? He could feel that he was smiling and that it wasn't an awkward guess at socially accepted behaviour for once. Just seeing her Tandia had managed to ease some of the tension between his eyebrows. He felt he should try and enjoy it while it lasted. Ninkern, unless the weather gets bad, we'll be there by tomorrow's nightfall, she said. She talked slowly, like a storyteller. We are bound for Cheramia. Do you know the best route there? Well, you can just stay with me if you like. I'm stopping in Ning for the night in a real bed, but then I continue north. Have stay travel from Ning to Chera. Perfect. Brasa. She smiled a little wider at him. Aima. She said with a confirming nod. He wobbled back over to Crow and sat down. The other Ori now sat leaning against the back of the bench running along the sides of the carriage and was staring out over the road behind them. Crow nodded as Lijikai repeated the information he'd been given. I never come this way between Midoril and Dimiri before, Crow said after a few moments of silence. Me neither, Lijikai said. I only went along the east coast, and I never went to the weir coast cities in Dimiri. He had never even seen the weir, apart from in paintings. And he had only ever been present at one weir scent, the ritual of sending dead Ori down the rivers into the enormous inner sea. Crow gave him a confused look. Then how do you know your augur is there? Not to suggest your plans are vague again or anything. Lydico's mouth tensed into a little line. I've just been keeping an eye on her. Okay, Crow said with a not very approving lifted eyebrow. Lydikai sighed sharply. I don't have many friends from before, before Eilid is, or from later, to be honest. She's family, I suppose. He hoped Crow wouldn't next ask him how much in contact he stayed with his registered family, because that was a lot less than this. Crow made a small gesture of acknowledgement seemed that explanation had been enough. 
Where in Tim Mary did you live? Didikai said, very much hoping to steer the conversation away from his questionable history of mortal contact. Born in Felhart, Crow said. People who tried to race me weren't the best, so I mostly lived with other kids away from there. Speaking of chosen family. An unsuccessful tension trying to be a smile rippled across their face. And then, later, I lived in Vilbloom for a while. That was a good year, actually. But I haven't really lived in many places after her. Just sort of kept moving. Who taught you how to use magic? You need at least that for deception magic, do you not? Crow let out a small snort, shaking their head. (laughs) That's only ever just the one thing with you, isn't it? Deception magic. They chuckled. Lidikai wanted to protest. Before he could try, however, Crow raised their hands in a gesture of surrender. Me and the other kids I lived with, there was this Ori who was a sort of leader for us. A little older, brash. Mirva. She could do some illusions herself. For us, it was just the theatrics of it, yeah. You know, the tiny light shows before bed, the shadow puppets, that sort of thing. That was what I thought magic was at that point. A way to make everything a little less grey. It's funny to think back on knowing now that she used it to keep most of us in check. Behind the dazzling lights and all that. Without us ever noticing. They snorted. Anyway... (laughs) She organized us, pickpocketing, mischief, just trying to survive. She set us up with the people to tell. She always challenged me. Always got me to tell that one Ori who had a shank down their boot. But she also always gave me the best rewards. And then one night, bit of a bad night overall that one, the other kids were picking up on me being treated differently and they didn't like it. Had trouble sleeping, stomach ache all the time, that sort of thing. So anyway, following this Ori down an alley, and just when I think it's the right moment of grabbing her pouch without also stepping in a pool of piss, she turns around, realizing what I'm doing. She's livid, drunk, just slams me against the wall, head first. I thought I was going to pass out, but I didn't. And um, then she just lets go. I look at her and she lets go, falls down on her knees, Mind you, the ground is, like, covered in manure, and hands me her pouch. Not only that, she starts taking off her earrings, rings, necklace, just heaps it in my hands, crying, apologizing, before running off. And there I am, trying to keep all these things in my hands, no idea what's going on, but happy I'll have something to show Mirva, but she's already there. She's seen it all. I'll never forget that look, she was just staring well, back then, I was sure she was angry. Now, I know she was terrified. <laughs> she came around later, pretty quickly. We started to run together, more as equals after that. It turned out. Lidikai was probably staring. Crow smirked at him, which made him look away. No training, just like that. <sighs> yep. Definitely the takeaway I predicted from you. Crow muttered incredulously, half laughing. But Lidikai was circles away. He was chewing on his lower lip, foot tapping underneath his dry, quickly deteriorating shoe. You must be a ferris. He mumbled down towards his hands, which were absent-mindedly scratching each other. 
I'm a what now? Crow said, demonstratively louder, to make Lady Kai look up. It worked. I... A Ferris. It's a term for Ori who don't need founts to focus magic. I know deception magic doesn't use founts, but... It is true that you need extensive training for it to work reliably. It still needs a focus. Correct? Crow nodded stiffly. Sure, yeah, I guess. I don't know. That's amazing, Digikai said. Did you hear anything I just said? Crow threw out their hands, eyebrows raised. Lidikai stared blankly at them, lips parting slowly in obvious confusion. He blinked, going over Crow's story rapidly in his head again. I am... Sorry you had to experience that, he said quietly. Crow let out their short laugh and then gave Lidikai a sympathetic look. Thank you, Lidikai. They didn't sound as if they meant it. There were so many things Lidikai wanted to ask. There were probably things he could say now, things that were objectively good to say in this situation. The combination of those two things in his head made him decide that the absolute best thing he could do was to remain quiet. This Taryn, she and Olga when you lived together as well, Crow said after a few ten breaths of silence. No. Though she was always many things. A healer, mostly. Officially. He smiled a little, despite the previous discomfort over the conversation. And a necromancer. Lidikai was very used to the sound of fire. He knew that many of his associations with the element were not necessarily common. The breathtaking whoosh of a formed flame awoken from the latent energies around him. The soft crackle at the start of a fire on a surface. The warmth he could summon, redirect in his body. When nothing was around that could be hurt, when he had nothing to fear, he had experienced what fire could be to him. At those times, he had felt at home, felt like flame itself, a guide to an eternal flood of heat, part of something incredible, something beautiful. At those rare times, he hadn't felt afraid. He had been safe. Secure. Useful. And the sound of fire. It still had that initial abstract warmth for him. Safety. Something was bright around him and he opened his eyes. It was the orange year in Eilatis and someone had directed a prism to shine right in through his bedroom window again. Then he quickly noticed that the light was not the steady homogeneous glow of an apex at all. It was the turbulent tearing of fire, and he had mistaken it for something safe. He was back in Eilatis, 
at the Institute. He hadn't moved a single owl in any direction. The entire place was engulfed in flame, and he was in the middle of it. In a few breaths, his energy to shield himself from the fire would run out. He would be part of it for real, this time. Immolated. Ruined. Like he should be. But the heat never trickled his skin from the outside. The smell didn't increase. The room was not his. And the furniture was not the white wood of Egerlin. In a haze, he registered the fact that he was in Lincairn, in an inn, in a room he had booked the evening before. But the fire was real. It was just not in the room with him. It coloured the entire world outside red. Jerkily making it into his clothes and up to the one small window, he looked out on terror. Fires were spreading rapidly among all the small, dark, deal-wood houses in the village. He saw shapes, some moving, some not. It was only a matter of time before flames reached the inn. He grabbed his bag and his robe and made for Crow's room down the hall. He quickly noticed that the door was open, the room empty. That seemed to be the case with all four rooms in the inn. The fire outside sent in beams of angry red and orange dancing maniacally across the dark walls. Giara. Legica whispered through clenched teeth as he stepped out of the inn. The heat was choking at first. His head spun as he did his best to redirect and control the warmth around him. There were screams. Several. Some of them died out disturbingly abruptly. And then there was another sound. It was almost impossible to make out about the roaring of the fire. But it was there. A constant undulating, chittering, whispering. Among it, the sound of hard, heavy hoofs against the ground. Mist mass. As the thought dawned on him, one of them flew out around the corner of a building only a couple of oars length away from him. It saw him, a wicked grin spreading over its face, enormous trident in its hands spinning to face him. His breath got stuck in his throat. Slowly, the mare strode over towards him, still with the gnarly-looking trident held out in front of him. Black hair hung from its head, sticking to the sweaty, pale skin, all the way down to where the ori torso met the light grey, soot-stained fur of the horse-looking body. Lady Kai let out his breath again in discomfort as he saw both the chest of the ori body and the larger horse body heave in heavy breaths as it approached. The mist mare's grin became wider, hungrier, the nearer it came. Unbelievably quickly, it went from a stalking, calculated stride to rearing up in front of the surrounding flames and aiming down with the trident at Lijikai. He was sluggish with both an overload of racing adrenaline and a body wanting to freeze in panic. He hadn't needed verbal commands to control even the most difficult to coax flame for decades, but at this very moment, his fractured split-breath thinking needed to be safe rather than sorry. Arikaloida! He shouted at the descending mist mare. It was too much. 
The flames around him were more powerful and wilder than he could imagine. He felt them change current hard enough for them to move the earth with their motion. The fire cascading over the mist mare in front of him burned away fur, hair, melted skin down to become a charred skeleton on the ground. It was over, in a breath. The wooden handle of the trident was gone, and the head of it fell to the ground with a loud metallic clatter. Dedekai lost control of his limbs and fell down on his knees on the black ground, laughing breathily despite himself, forgetting everything but the intoxicating sensation the magic had allowed for. Had Ninken been as small a village as Rinetti, the power of Lydikai's spell would probably have doused the entirety of it. As it were, everything close to Lydikai was a warm, smoking mess of cinders, but he could see that the village was still burning fiercely further away. Shaking himself out of the momentary euphoria, he dragged himself to his feet again. He needed to find Crow. Shapes resembled charred bodies in his periphery. The screams he had heard previously had died down. Many of the townspeople had run past him as he exited the inn. Most of them had hopefully managed to flee. But the body resembling shapes around him were many, and mocked that hope. He tried not to think about what that logically meant for Crow. Instead, he tried to focus on that Crow might be a Ferris and that they could defend themselves, however much they hated doing it. The smoke was starting to get to him. His eyes were watering, his throat hurt. The sound that he now associated with the mist mares, but didn't know exactly where it came from or how they made it, was getting louder. That constant whispering and chittering billowed like a cloud. Suddenly, he had walked past the wall of smoke only to be surrounded by what he quickly counted to be eight mares. Their synchronized reaction at seeing him was sharp as their weapons. They reared, tried and lifted then instantly thrown. He didn't need words this time. Every last lick of flame in the village was under his dominion. The mere shockwave of heat took care of the tridents flying towards him. The veritable waves of fire that shot out of him after that made very short work of the mist mass. The sound was sickening. Screams and panic chittering. High-frequency yelps bouncing among them, the sizzle of flesh under fire, the smell of burning bone. The effort left Lejikai on the verge of unconsciousness. It was only through half-lidded eyes he saw that a ninth mare of the group stumbled up from the ground some yards away. It was still alive. It was fleeing. He saw it had managed to douse the flames, but its skin and hair had melted away. Its wild eyes stared from among pink, wet burns and met his. The mare looked, stared, nailed the memory of Lydikai into its mind, he could tell. Then it finally, haltingly, set off. He had to let it go. What little energy he still had left must be spent finding Crow. The entire village was now in a state of smoke and cinders. Small fires still feebly sputtered in some places, trying to find something to attach to, but Lydikai had drawn away its ability to spread properly. Dizzy and unstable, he slowly made it along the blackened remains of houses, calling out Crow's name as he went, angry at it not sounding louder. He saw more bodies that had once, recently, been alive, now smouldering, sizzling statues of flesh. 
gagging, he'd try to see them as part of the charred wood instead of snuffed-out lives. Many must have made it out. They must have run and made it out. He thought it like a threat to whatever wanted to listen. After a while, he was sure he was completely lost, turned around by smoke nausea. He was too tired to entertain the thought of giving up and all the consequences that thought would have. Then he heard a loud, painful cough and a familiar whine of pain. Again, he tried to implore, but it was a whisper. Another cough. He was sure where it came from now. Lying on their side in an alley behind one of the houses, Crow groaned feebly as Lidikai approached. They held their arms folded over their stomach. Lidikai's entire body was shaking, and that made it difficult to get Crow to a standing position. Every movement caused a distressing spasm to go through the soot-covered ori. Your heart, Lidikai croaked, when Crow had finally managed to get on their feet. Another groan. Lidikai could tell Crow was close to passing out from pain. Propping them up against himself, Lidikai grabbed his water skin, drank everything in there, and focused as well as he could. A few of the founts on his forearms responded, allowing for what he tried to do. With some awkward, careful pulling, Lidikai managed to pick Crow up into his arms, now that said arms were magically strong enough to do that. He almost instantly lost the carefully gathered focus as he felt blood pulled out from Crow as he lifted them up. It bloomed along his linen shirt and trousers. There was no chance he could even start to heal whatever that was. This exhausted, he was more likely to kill Crow if he tried. With a deep breath, he set off towards the stables. Mninkan was a bonfire, a traditionally built Dimiri village, or wood, but prevented from total destruction in the case of a fire by a body of water going through it. Lidikai had taken note of the stables and corals being on the other side of that body of water in this village. Half running towards it now, he hoped it had filled its purpose. When they had arrived in Ninkan, Lidikai had spotted grey drifters and another animal that seemed even more common this side of the snake spine. Rungas. Silvery, large, flightless crickets that moved a lot faster than the sturdy grey drifters. Some animals seemed to have broken loose, judging by the state of parts of the stable. But, to Lidikai's enormous joy, there was an actual ready equipage secured to one of the stable walls. The two large rungas attached to the carriage were stressed. Long, thin antennae waved around nervously. Large, segmented bodies strained against the harnesses around them. Spiky exoskeleton limbs burrowed into the soft ground. The carriage had gilded doors and was adorned on the inside with beautiful silk patterns. Someone must have passed through tonight and went to help. Lady Kai was quite sure he knew how that had gone for them. He lifted Crow into the carriage with a huff, his robe getting stuck twice on the decorative flimsy doors. There was an elegant robe or dress heaped on one of the seats. With some trouble, Lady Kai made Crow press it against their abdomen. Having managed to calm the two rungas down enough for them to not run wildly as he untied them, Didike climbed up in the driver's seat, feeling how incredibly unsteady both his arms and legs were now. Steering the carriage out on the dark road, he hoped that half-day estimate to Cheramia was a pessimistic one.